0: Welcome back to Maastricht Law Talk. My name is Benedict. We talk about tort law today in the sixth episode.
1: Every year in Ontario, thousands of people are seriously injured in car or slip and fall accidents. Recovery can be overwhelming and for many a financial nightmare.
0: Sir, drop your weapon, put your hands on your head and get down on the ground. You are going to be placed
1: under arrest. We can help them get the financial compensation they deserve.
0: Preventing a breach of the peace is a legitimate state
1: interest. You have the right to an
0: attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. I am very happy to uh, sit here together with Reis van Dijk, Professor of Private Law at Maastricht University. Reis, hello. You did your PhD in Tilburg, where you also taught before. Can you maybe just briefly introduce us to um, the topic that you wrote your PhD on?
1: Yes, it was on a topic which is called transaction avoidance. It's in uh, insolvency uh, law. So imagine the example where you have a car and a home and you see that you're in financial difficulties. You want to uh, save your home and your car. Uh, you transfer it to your family members for one or two euros. And then in bankruptcy, the the trustee will see that there's no car and no home anymore. And he can get that back with uh, the application of transaction avoidance rules. And was
0: that of any influence for um, the work you did after? Or did you drift into a certain direction that has nothing necessarily to do with uh, that PhD? Uh,
1: everything every, everything has to do with uh, with everything. <laughs> Um, so what I did at some point in my PhD research, I started doing empirical research because I thought, you know, what I'm reading in the books is that actually what is happening there. So I thought, let's go out of the ivory tower Um, and then a world opens up to you because you see a lot of things that you've never uh, thought of or imagined and I thought well this is this empirical research that's that's nice I should have done it better so I took additional courses I even taught at the social science faculty and regression analysis which is also very fun like I had an office (laughs) one day a week uh, where I was surrounded by statisticians who were uh, recalculating uh, SPSS a statistical program they could Mm -hmm. you know check whether the program did things right so that was Really uh, interesting to see that world, and from there it kind of took off. and um, And I thought, you know, doing empirical research that's that's really uh, interesting. First, I did it in the field of bankruptcy law because that was kind of what I grew up with or was specialized in. Um, but I, I at some point, I was thinking, well, the the problems that I see. Uh, are not only typical for bankruptcy law, but are also applicable to other fields, including tort law. And then I basically shifted to um, tort law and uh, especially the relationship between non-monetary needs and what the tort law system has to offer. But we can talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This will come soon. Um,
0: I I think most of our listeners know what normal legal research looks like. But what empirical research makes different is what...
1: So usually what we do as lawyers is we read texts and we interpret texts and Uh, For example, we see a number of cases and we try to compare those cases. We compare the outcomes because sometimes somebody is sentenced to death and sometimes not or sometimes somebody gets money and in other cases the plaintiff does not get any money. Mm -hmm. And we try to explain why that is, like why these cases differ. So we try to derive general rules from case law. That's one type of research that we do. Um, empirical research is a little different because you kind of look at, the, uh, for example, the effects of the law. If you make the law different, you can think of what will happen, but sometimes what actually happens is different from what you intuitively would expect. Um, there's there's plenty of examples, I'll, I can give those uh, probably later if you have uh, <laughs> some questions about it. Um, So basically, you look at reality and you study reality not by reading text or merely reading text. You Mm -hmm. mostly look at, um, for example, how individuals behave. So you can look at behavior. Uh, Also, you can still look at text, but in a very different way. So instead of just reading text, you're going to apply certain social science methods. So one of the, the projects I'm working on now is what we call network analysis, where you basically see... Uh, cases as, um, uh, as as things that communicate with each other and from that you can derive the most important cases and that's a very different way of looking at the same problem. So empirical research is basically looking at legal problems but from a different perspective with different methods basically the methods that are used in, in, in other disciplines such as surveys questionnaires, uh, interviews case study methods. That's how I would describe that.
0: And I could imagine that a collaborative approach is there very important or are you doing all of this on your own?
1: Uh, I would say yes to both uh, questions <laughs> uh, I am doing a lot of things on my own um, depends how you define alone I mean I use a lot of students uh, in yeah. my in my projects um, but collaboration with other faculties that's not actually so common should be more I think um, yeah. but the problem is we're all kind of stuck in our silo so we all have our own uh, ideas or perspectives of what the law of how we should study the law <laughs> or what we should study uh and the questions that we ask are not often the same questions as social scientists for example are interested in so there you kind of see the silos of of science mm-hmm. um so i think yeah as a discipline we we should benefit more from the information and and uh, expertise that's out there in other disciplines but uh, but, you know, I, I try to collaborate, I do it on my own, and, uh, and it's fantastic. <laughs> well, that's beautiful.
0: Next to, well, all these experiences we've mentioned already, you also have been a visiting st- scholar in Stanford and at the KU Leuven.
1: Um, what, what did you do there? Well, that was the the at Stanford was the best time of my life, I would think, because you're there for research purposes, so you can do research, like a lot of reading in the mm-hmm. library, talk to to faculty members there. Stanford is not the worst place to be <laughs> at academically. Um, in that in that part of my academic career, I was still figuring out what I wanted to do. You want to come up with a good idea. I, my former supervisor said, um, hey "Guys." Like most researchers, well, you're lucky if you're a researcher that has one good idea that is really fundamental in the in the field, and that made me think like if if it's very difficult to come up with one good idea in your life, then uh, then you need to think really hard about it. So I use that time to 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 have new ideas, to see what was going on, to write some things, and uh, to basically create a research agenda. So that was at Stanford, and at was a, I don't even know, visiting researcher, visiting lecturer, uh, because we were cooperating um, with the KU Leuven, so when I was working at Tilburg University, we mm. were cooperating with KU Leuven and we had a joint research master program, and then automatically you get the status <laughs> of, uh, of that, so <laughs> that's that.
0: So, did you find the one question in Stanford? Is I don't the, know. Are those the network analysis you're doing now, or what is? Uh?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's uh, to others to answer that question if I found something fundamentally. But I think, and I'm not sure if I found it at Stanford, but it definitely contributed to things. So often in your career, like certain things you, you come across and you don't really think that that's important at that moment and years later you combine things and then it, something becomes important. And I think it definitely contributed to that. When I was there, I met um, uh, a professor who was working on intellectual property and he had a database of all the cases and you could kind of predict what the outcome would be given certain case char- characteristics, uh, where your outcome would be in, in district Y with uh, judge X. And I was fascinated by that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and years later, uh, it, it came back. So, so the example I gave of, of network analysis, I think that's really something groundbreaking. It's a very new way of looking at cases. Uh, to define the importance of cases and uh, it's really unprecedented like there's just a few people in Europe working on this and, um, and the potential is enormous so I think that's really good we're trying to develop a technology that will I think fundamentally reform how we search for cases and how we identify relevant cases And uh, so I think that's – I think it's a good idea, but, you know, I don't know if others agree. Well, (laughs) we'll, time will tell, I guess. And the other one is what I call a mismatch between what people want in tort law and what they can obtain. So what they want is is they they want apologies, recognition, financial Mm -hmm. compensation. They want to make sure that what happened to them doesn't happen again. But – Basically, the only solution in tort law is monetary compensation, so you get money. So there's a mismatch between what people want or need or pursue and what they can obtain in tort law, and it's interesting to study that mismatch, uh, why, why there is a mismatch, whether you can solve it, uh, there's always unexpected uh, effects that might be out there, um, and that's, that's kind of the thing that I study as well. I think it's a good idea, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> well, this will come up in
0: just a second. Um, in the fourth episode, I've talked with Jan Smits, uh, Smits, who is the di- uh, co-director of the Maastricht Private Law Institute. And when you came to Maastricht, I think in September 2016. Yes. Um, you also joined Meplely as a co-director. Um, and I don't think that Jan and I talked about that that much, could you maybe just describe what Meplely is doing.
1: Yeah, so basically, we have a very open uh, research agenda. So Meplely is about private law, so it includes a wide range of topics uh, from contract law to family law to company law. while well, company law is is a separate institute. but uh, toward law, like a lot of a lot of fields are included there. It's built bottom-up, so we allow researchers to come up with their own ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the, the common core is defined by the comparative perspective and also the fundamental perspective, that we do not try merely try to solve practical problems, but we try to look at fundamental problems that are out there in uh, in the legal field. Um Always say, you know, there's not not uh, nothing more practical than a good theory, right? So it's not that we ignore practical problems, but I think that combination of the comparative aspect with uh, looking at fundamental issues that are going on, uh, and try to combine that with also uh, practical problems that are out there, that offers a unique perspective. So I guess the openness of comparative law and also interdisciplinary research—that's kind of what defines uh, Mapley.
0: Okay. I will just open the substantial um, discussion with the question: What is tort law? Oh, to say, someone that never ever heard about it, you ju- you already mentioned apologies and money uh, compensation. Yeah, um, but what is that?
1: You can, um, I mean, the philosophical answer is, is kind of complicated. But if you would explain it to people, it's it's about um, basically inexcusable wrongs, you could say. You could say it, um, you were wronged, you suffered a harm or a loss, and you want to do something about that. So, for example, if you get hit by another car, um, then you're probably suffering losses because you have medical costs. Uh, maybe you have a physical injury um you, you, uh, you suffer from that for a while. And from that, you know, tort law allows you to claim something from the wrongdoer, the person who hit you, for example. So it's basically wrongs that, that are inexcusable in a way, at least according to the law, and also do not have a contractual foundation. Right? So in mm-hmm. contract law, for example, you, you have a contract because you want to have a contract with the other person at some point. Maybe things go wrong and you want to claim money from the other uh, uh, contractual party. But in tort law, there's not really another contractual party. It's not like you want to get hit by another person <laughs> in the car. Well, hopefully right? not, no. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so that makes tort law a little different from, from contract law.
0: Well, you you already mentioned Mapley's focus on comparison, and uh, we did bring up common law jurisdictions before. And um, well, we are in a civil law jurisdiction right now. What would you say is a big difference um, when it comes to the way of those jurisdictions approaching tort law?
1: I mean, I guess it comes down to to general things. First, I'm not sure if the, if there's that much of a difference. Well, let me put it differently. Um, I think the differences between common law and civil law are overstated in terms of (laughs) that it seems like there's a lot of differences between the two types of systems, but the differences within those systems are also overlooked tremendously. So, for example, when I compare the UK with um, the US, for example, those systems are completely different. We both call them common law systems, but the whole departing point is is different, right? So U.S. tort law is much more instrumental than uh, U.K. tort law. So, for example, in in the U.S., uh, people are much more concerned about uh, efficiency, about the effects of the law. They s- consider the law more as a means to the end. While in the U.K., it, the law is more and tort law as well. It's more considered like an autonomous system that um, that is not a means to an end, but is also an end in itself. So, for example, if you look at um, if you look at um, punitive damages, that's that's a very interesting topic with respect to um, the instrumental approach of tort law. Punitive damages is so. Let's say that take the example of the car accident. Uh, you hit me in your car. I suffer a loss. I'm claiming my medical costs from you because, you know, I'm going to the doctor and I have some medical costs or my insurance company will, will claim that from you. And on top of that, you get a punitive element, right? So I have 2,000 in medical costs, but I also want 10,000 in punitive damages. That is a very instrumental way of looking at the law because what and Just for the sake of it, or...
0: <laughs> I mean, why punitive damages?
1: Well, it has different purposes. So... Um, if, if I don't want you to drive recklessly again, the idea could be that if you have to pay a lot of money to mm-hmm. me as a victim, if you do something wrong, if you hit somebody in the car, then next time you will be much more careful when you drive. So then you see that those punitive damages can have a, an effect on your behavior. Afterwards, but also maybe beforehand, because if you hear of punitive damages, then you don't want to have to pay punitive damages. So <laughs> yes, you, okay. you're, so you might be mm-hmm. driving more carefully or safely. Um, there's a lot of debate on on whether those punitive damages actually work that way. But the way of thinking is much more different than, for example, a corrective justice standpoint, where you think, okay, so you you hit me by uh, in the car. What am I now as a victim entitled to uh, I'm only entitled to um, so basically the wrong should mirror the loss, so if I have a loss of two thousand euros, I should not get more than those two thousand
0: euros so you should just be in the same position as you've been before exactly okay. yeah
1: and and that's a that's a different way of thinking, so your starting point is uh, is is very different
0: I could imagine that when you listen to all of this it sometimes just sounds like criminal law. And we talked about this in episode two. Um, And I think it it might be very important to maybe um, empathize what the differences really are between criminal law and
1: uh, tort law. Yeah. So the interesting thing is they basically derived from the same provisions, right? So in in Roman law, uh, there was no distinction between tort law and criminal law. Basically, uh, as a victim, the only recourse you had was recourse in in a private action right so if you did something bad to me i could go to to claim from you and it could claim money and i could claim not only the loss that i suffered but also the at the punitive add, uh, element to it and at some point in time those two became disconnected so the punitive part was removed from what we now call tort law mm-hmm. and, and that went to criminal law so and that's what you still see now so the the element of retribution and punishment, that's now for criminal law, not so much more for tort law. But then
0: again, if you have punitive damages, isn't
1: that in some way a
0: punitive act?
1: Uh, It is a punitive act, and that's exactly why a lot of legal systems are hesitant to award punitive damages, Mm -hmm. because uh, a lot of scholars also say that's not for tort law, it's for uh, criminal law. Mm -hmm. So if you want to punish somebody, that has to be uh, done in criminal law, not in uh, in the field of private law. So, so yeah, that's uh, th- that's one of the yeah one of the, the the examples where the difference between tort law and criminal law becomes a little bit blurred. For example, so the goal is is different. Um, the actors are also different because if you wrong me, if you hit me by with the car, then I can claim damages from you, but I cannot claim sentences for you right? i cannot say like i want you to be uh, in jail for the next 5 years <laughs> right that's the public prosecutor uh-huh. who does that so also the actors are um are different and also the the remedy or the outcome is different because in in criminal law you go to jail or you pay a fine and in tort law you basically pay uh, monetary compensation and mostly not being a fine uh, but just compensating the loss that the victim has uh, has suffered
0: does it mean that in tort law it's always two private actors against each other?
1: Uh, yes, I mean, sometimes the government is involved, but then the mm-hmm. government is still seen as uh, as private actors. So that's why tort law is part of private law, because it concerns uh, private actors who, uh, who sue each other or, okay. ha- or have a conflict with each other.
0: And then you did mention the example of a car crash and then uh, the insurance came up. Um, but then the insurance... Claims the money. Of course, the insurance is also a private actor, but the insurance did not directly. Um, uh, I would, I would suppose, uh, get the damage itself.
1: Right. Well, yes and no. So the the construction is in um, in most legal systems that I, as a victim, I suffered a loss. So I should claim. Like, it's not that anybody else can claim my loss. But the construction often is that if I have a contract with an insurance company, then what happens is that the insurance company takes over my claim. Mm -hmm. So I transfer my claim to an insurance company, and then the insurance company can claim basically on my behalf from the other party. So in that way, the insurance company claims directly from uh, the wrongdoer but um, basically, based on the case that I suffered and the loss that I suffered, which makes sense from a victim perspective because well, that's what we call secondary victimization. Like it's bad enough to be hit by a car, but then also when you have to go to, through the legal proceedings, um, that, that might also cause further distress. So that's.
0: I, I, I could imagine it also depends on the legal system again, but that would involve two separate proceedings one criminal and one tort law proceeding, or can they be combined in court and then... Yeah,
1: de- it depends on the on the legal system, but in some systems you have the possibility to um, basically join the public prosecutor to also claim monetary compensation in the criminal uh, procedure, uh, which makes sense because why would you have two separate procedures when you can basically ha- cover the same topic in, in one procedure. So in that way, it becomes a little bit blurred where you mm-hmm. can like com- um, claim compens- uh, monetary compensation in a criminal law uh, procedure, but that's starting to become uh, more common. The opposite isn't, right? It's not like you can go to a civil court and uh, ask for uh, jail times, jail <laughs> sentences from uh, from somebody else.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. When we talk about the motives of uh, imposing liability on um, tortfeasors, is that only economical because now we, well, I, I want the money back? Or is that also one of the, like, an idea of justice that I need the money because you've just, um, yeah. well, yeah, destroyed my property?
1: Yeah. Um, so what we see in empirical research is that the reasons for people to, um, to litigate to start proceedings or to sue even, they're very different. I already said the, the the idea of getting an apology, of getting mm-hmm. re- recognition for the suffering, for example, or for the wrong, um, knowing what has happened that's also very important to a lot of victims right you see that with the the downing of that uh, the plane above uh, ukrainian uh, oh, uh, airspace okay. yeah. the victims are also like suing people and but the, the the most important thing for them is to know what happened to their um, to their relatives and also to hold the persons responsible who are responsible um so you see that in those big events but you also see that for example in bankruptcies if you're a creditor in a in a bankruptcy and you have a claim that you can't collect because there's not enough money anymore then you want to be um you want to be make sure that those who are responsible will be kept responsible so if the director did something wrong you want that person to be responsible for that um, medical malpractice cases are also a very good example, I think. So if you go to the hospital and you want to be cured, but something bad happens, so the doctor makes a mistake, for example, um, then empirical research shows that the most important thing what people want is they want to have a good explanation about what happens. They're not immediately going to sue the doctor, That's mm-hmm. which is what we often think. Uh, they want to know what has happened, why it happened, and to make sure that it doesn't happen again to them, but also to other patients. So the the reasons are very different; depends on the context. But they're all what we at least know is that there's a lot of variety of uh, reasons why people uh, sue or why they claim. Um, then, the, then one of the interesting thing is things is. Why do they then actually claim, and if, and that's because the tort law system only offers them the possibility to to claim in order to do that. You have to hire a lawyer, pay two yeah. or three hundred euros or <laughs> maybe a little bit less. So that's also a little bit weird, right? So if you want recognition, you have to pay a lawyer two, 300 euros per hour, and then uh, then you can obtain recognition. So the, the incentive to claim an apology or to claim that, uh, uh, that you get the information that you want, that's, those incentives are a little lacking at the moment.
0: We've distinguished before that tort law is fundamentally different from contract because there's no underlying contract between those two parties. But when I think about your doctor example now, isn't there some kind of co- contract I have with my um, GP or well doctor that uh, performs an operation on me?
1: Yes. Um, it also depends on on the uh, legal system, so how we qualify obligations. So, of course, you have as a patient a contract with the sir the the the, the, the medical facility with the doctor or the hospital, for example. Um, but sometimes, on top of that, you know you you. The, the contract could entail, uh, you know, I'm going to have a surgery on my back, and that doctor is going to do that for this price, and mm-hmm. I or my insurance company will uh, will pay the, the the bill for that. But if that doctor makes a mistake, there's there's not going to be in that contract a provision that's that says we agreed that my doctor will make a mistake, right? <laughs> um, often there's also not a provision that would also not be nice for the uh, patient. Uh, exactly. In, right. in case
0: I almost kill you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So sometimes there's there's duty of cares that are not in the contract, that are not sometimes even in statutes. And then basically if that's not the case, then you're in the uh, area of, of tort law. So there are situations where you would expect The situation to be dominated by contract law but actually tort law is applied and i think this example of medical malpractice is is one of them but really depends on the legal system
0: that's a beautiful term that i think came up the first time duty of care um well does that mean what is a duty of care what do i have one just by walking down the street and now everyone can sue me if whatever happens or
1: uh, no, of course not. <laughs> but um, yeah, what the concept of duty of care is—that uh, is one of the interesting questions that uh, that scholars are engaged with. Uh, mm. Is basically that's basically an important part of legal research and also what practitioners do to see what exactly does that duty of care entail. If you walk down the street, you know, you're, you're not liable for everything that happens. But you do have a duty of care as, a, for example, a good neighbor, to be a good neighbor. Uh, So if you get up every day at 5 a.m. in the morning and you play your music very loud and you cause some nuisance for your neighbor then you're violating a duty of care, which is basically behave like a good neighbor. And a good neighbor mm-hmm. does not get up at 5 a.m. and um, and plays music as loud as he can, for example. I would agree with that. Yeah. Your duty of care, uh, you also have a duty of care to um, uh, to be safe, right? So if you're walking down the street and you start hitting other people, then you're also violating a duty of care because mm-hmm. that's not the way we want to behave in society. So basically that, that duty of care is... Um, is acting like a reasonable good person and what that reasonable good person is can really depend on the circumstances. So an employer has different uh, a different duty of care and a different level of duty of care than maybe a physician or a parent or you or me when we're walking down the street. Uh, maybe we have a higher duty of care when we uh, engage in, in in legal interaction because we should know a little bit more about the law than ordinary persons. Um, if you know something more about something, if you have more information about a financial product and you're trying to um, uh, put that in the market with wrong information, then that could also violate a duty, a duty okay. of care. So really depends on, on the circumstances. But it's a key concept in tort law. Is that always connected with fault? Uh, no, because uh, you can... Well, I mean, it is often connected with, with fault. It's kind of a... Difficult question to answer, I would say, <laughs> Perfect. Um, because even in, in examples of strict liability uh, where you're liable regardless of fault, you could say you violated a, a duty of care. Um, it really depends on how you would define a duty of care. But it is often connected to fault. So if you violate a duty of care, then we would say you're at fault and therefore you're probably liable.
0: I mean, you mentioned strict liability, um maybe maybe we can talk about the grounds for tort liability in in general so is there my fault as we mentioned strict liability is there anything else what makes them um well distinguishable
1: yeah so fault i mean that's that's a pretty simple concept yeah. to comprehend you do something wrong and we even call it a wrong <laughs> in the law in tort law and uh, as a consequence you're you're liable for that strict liability is is different a little different from that because in the strict liability, you're uh, basically at fault regardless of whether you did something uh, wrong. So for example, if I'm um, a manufacturer and I bring a product on the market that's defective, you know, if I, if I am a wine seller and I make wine and I bring the wine bottles on the market and consumers buy my wine bottles... And all of a sudden these wine bottles explode and they cause damage to their home or to their guests, et cetera. Then I, as a, um, a producer, am, uh, uh, am liable. So regardless of in that individual situation, I'm really at fault for ex, uh, making those uh, uh, bottles explode. Uh, you can also think about um, employers who have to take care of their employees so for example if my employee is working at a construction site mm-hmm. and uh, causes damage to to others for example he's, he drops uh, material equipment on the car of another person then that other person can claim and it can claim the damages not only from the employee, but also from me as an employer. So as an employer, then I'm responsible for my employee. I'm also liable for the actions of my employee, even if I didn't do anything wrong in that particular case.
0: What I can't really fit in there yet is, I I do remember as a child, just... uh, well, trespassing properties, uh, a lot of different things, and there, there, there were always those signs um, in German then would loosely translate to "parents are liable for their children." Um, but that's not really fault nor strict liability, is it?
1: Um, I mean, you. So would-
0: now they just be liable because. Yeah, I trespass and do something.
1: I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, you could see it as an example of vicarious liability where you're liable for another person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a way of strict liability because as parents you're, you're liable regardless of whether okay, you're yeah. at fault for the behavior of your children. Mm-hmm um which makes sense in a way because as a parent you are supposed to have sort of control over your children and and that element of control can also also comes with responsibility so if you're able to control your children to a certain extent and um uh, that you have responsibility for your children when they behave badly like trespassing uh, then then you might be liable for their actions and that could be considered an example of um strict liability
0: and i guess the same <laughs> holds true for pets i don't want to compare dogs or cats with um with the children now but um I, I i think if i have a dog and the dog attacks someone else i might as well also be liable
1: yeah same thing uh yeah you can talk about um, animals for for objects for example like things you possess for homes um products as already mentioned um, uh, employers responsible for employees there's a lot of examples of strict liability where you're responsible and liable for um other people's or other uh, other people's actions or damages caused by um by things
0: what i especially like when i took um the european taught law course at the faculty was traffic liability and i experienced that myself at some point in in germany that i well i was involved in a traffic accident and i in the end had to pay because i was the car um even though <laughs> didn't really it, it wasn't really my uh, fault in the end um so maybe you can elaborate on, on the traffic liability a little bit
1: more yeah in a lot of legal systems um uh, you have a high um duty of care when you're when you're driving a car um so in a lot of legal systems, you are liable as a car driver towards mm-hmm. uh, towards others, pedestrians or uh, people on the bike. And it actually makes makes sense, at least the justification for that is that uh, you're more powerful, right? So the protection of the weaker party, uh, as a pedestrian, you're a weaker party compared to the person in the car, the car driver, um that that makes that as a car driver you have more responsibility and also uh, you're probably going to be liable if you hit that uh, that pedestrian even if that pedestrian is is at fault to an important extent or even if you couldn't really do something about that intuitively it feels weird to many that sometimes a, a child who crosses a red light and you hit that child that you're still liable for the damages mm-hmm. that that child suffers Um. But you can only understand that when you look at the goals of tort law. We already talked about corrective justice yep. where, um, the wrong should mirror the loss or vice versa. If you have a 2000 euro loss, then the wrong, um, uh, the, the remedy should, should mirror that. Um, if you have a 2000 euro loss, you cannot claim 5000 euros because then there's no symmetry be, uh, between what you get and, and the wrong itself. Um, so there has to be a relationship between the wrongdoer and the victim, uh, and that relationship, uh, the, the 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 reason for paying damages has to be justified as well. But if you look at it from a distributive justice point of view, which is based on need, so we're gonna distribute liability and the cost based on need, then you can come up with different uh, outcomes. So, for example, if you say, well, um, weaker parties need more protection then it makes sense to protect that weaker party, regardless of whether that weaker party is more at fault or less at fault than the uh, the car driver, for mm-hmm. example. If you think that the system becomes more efficient if you have an insurance system where everybody pays their insurance premiums and when somebody gets hurt they can collect that from the insurance company uh, from the wrongdoer that system is probably more efficient than um, than having no insurance system and where you every time an accident happens you have to claim from from the wrongdoer who probably not is he going to be able to pay if he doesn't have enough funds, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at it from that perspective, the needs, uh, the 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 need for efficiency, for example, the need to protect weaker parties, then you come um, arrive at different outcomes uh, compared to, for example, the corrective justice uh, model, and then you understand better why uh when you get hit by a car the car driver is uh, is liable even though the level of fault is not that high mm. uh,
0: yeah especially with the car example again it it does maybe not even put such a big burden on the driver because him well him or her either way um is insured mandatory Insurance yeah. in a lot of countries, at least. So in the end, it doesn't necessarily come back to me as a driver. Okay, my premium will go up a little bit, but I won't have to pay the fifteen thousand damage I, I um, created. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's it. And again, it really depends on the mm-hmm. on the goal of Tor law. So if you look at it from a, a system of efficiency, then this might be a very good system because <laughs> it's it's the cheapest. Yeah. So the premiums stay low uh it makes us better off, it makes everybody better off it makes the victim also better off because the victim can claim regardless of whether you have money because you know insu- your insurance company is going to pay um assuming that you're the, the car driver in that example uh, when you say it's and and that's kind of what i heard was it doesn't deter me as a car driver Right, because my insurance company can yeah. pay for it. And yeah. That's that's another goal. So if you have the turns as as a goal, then the insurance system is is very bad. Because true, it, because
0: then the car driver doesn't care that much, right?
1: Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Assuming that the car driver knows the rules about liability. Right? Yeah. If you don't know the rules about liability, you're not going to <clears> be affected by those rules. So, um, but if you if you have a if you adopt a theory where you say, "Well, it's important that people need to be deterred by um, by the possibility of, of having to pay damages," and that's going to affect our, for example, driving behavior in this example, um, yeah, then you might might consider abolishing the system of uh, of the uh, insurances. But then that goes at the cost of providing victims with. An easy system to claim their damages, and also an efficient system, uh, which is probably going to be lead to more um, expensiveness for um, for the users of that system.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I I do know that my well, the way I look at using other people's objects is that it's very different from what other people do, um, because I know I am insured. If I mistake, like obviously by mistake. Um <clears throat> I don't know let the laptop of a friend fall down my insurance will pay that but then I also have friends that now I oh got you know like I, I wouldn't want to use this very expensive equipment now because if something happens I cannot repay you.
1: Um you mean you cannot repay if it's not covered by yeah. insurance yeah. yeah yeah so that So might- especially
0: here that's again probably a cultural difference um that back in Germany I basically don't know anyone that is not insured against those things um, but then here where an international community comes together um, from countries where, where this is not at all normal yeah
1: well the Netherlands is also normal but sometimes yeah. I ask uh, <laughs> my students who is insured uh, you know has this this typical insurance that everybody has to have. And then it turns out that not everybody has that insurance, so yeah. uh, because they think they're still uh, on the policy with their parents, but they're yeah. not in practice, so uh, my hand goes up <laughs> that can be a little tricky, so maybe you should look into that yourself too if you're really insured um, but jokes aside, yeah I mean that could um, that could yeah could result in in different behavior like if you mm-hmm. know you're going to be liable and your insurance is not going to cover the cost if you drop the expensive laptop, then you might not want to use that laptop. Uh, alternatively, if you know that somebody is uh, covered by insurance uh, and you dropped your own laptop, you could say, you know, uh, hey, friend, can you say, admit to my insurance company that you dropped the laptop or to your own insurance company that you dropped the laptop so I can get my cost reimbursed? So well, okay, yeah. there's there's always a downside to every system that, uh, yeah. that you have. And it's basically uh, the ultimate question is, uh, what, what do you prefer more? Is, is it that you're not going to use that laptop? Or are you going to have that if a more efficient system where you um, probably going to pay premiums, and if you drop the laptop, you get your money, but there's going to be some abuse of that system?
0: Let's go back to the damages. So we have established that um, I have committed a tort. What kind of damages do I have to pay? You did mention the punitive damages, which uh, make up a big part in the United States, and I, I don't know the exact name of the case, but there's this famous McDonald's coffee case um, that everyone knows about. And I think, if I w- c- remember correctly, um, on the, f- at the f- on, on first sight, it seems so unjust. But a lot of Americans do understand what uh, what was going on there. Um, yeah, m- maybe if you want to uh, just bring up the case. Yes,
1: and- you're referring to the Liebeck versus McDonald's case. Yeah. Um, it's, it is a famous case. It actually happened. There's also the famous cat-in-the-microwave case. Uh, okay. where, uh,
0: that just sounds typical American. I'm sorry for everyone I'm offending right now. but
1: Where somebody <laughs> claimed damages, supposedly, because <coughs> the manufacturer of the microwave didn't put in their instructions that you should not put cats in the microwave. This
0: is why on the microwave we have stickers now telling me I don't have to put my phone in the microwave.
1: Huh? Oh, there are actually stickers on Well, that. probably not here, that, but, but uh, it, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So, but that that case is uh, is a hoax. So researchers actually started looking for that case because it was often used as an example of how excessive uh, punitive damages and <laughs> claim uh, mm-hmm. the, the litigious society is in the U.S. They never found that case. So that's probably a hoax. But the Liebeck vs. McDonald's case that is a real case. Um, there was a lady who ordered coffee at the McDonald's um, and she was sitting, I think, in the passenger side and she spilled coffee over her lap and uh, she suffered from uh, from serious burns, had medical costs, claimed damages. Ultimately, uh, she re- rejected a, um, a settlement proposal, which was not that high if you compare that with what she ultimately was awarded. Mm-hmm. And then I think the courts um, don't have the exact numbers, but the court ultimately awarded her with 600,000 euros in compensatory damages, something like that, uh, which is basically the coverage of the medical costs and pain and suffering, et cetera. And then in addition to that, uh, they awarded $2.3 million in punitive damages. Um, So basically she became a, a rich person because of that. And that case is often – like people know that case and they they are repelled by it and opposed by it because it basically shows the litigious nature of of U.S. tort law and how bad it can be. Uh, but there's a few remarks to be made about that case because what nobody, I mean, legal scholars know it, but what the society often doesn't know is that those 2.3 or 2.7 million in two punitive damages were later reduced by the judge to approximately five or six hundred thousand dollars, which is uh, still a which is still a lot, nice <laughs> although even. When you look at the the way the procedure goes in the U.S., it's a little different than in other countries. So, for example, in the Netherlands, you have the system of the loser pays, right? So if you lose mm-hmm. a legal case, then you pay the, the legal costs of the other party. In the U.S., there's the system of each pays their own costs. Um, and if you have to pay your own lawyer um, who wins that case... And then you can use a part of those punitive damages to actually pay that pay that lawyer. So in that way, it's it's a little bit more nuanced. It's also more nuanced because when you look at empirical research, they started investig research started investigating how often are punitive damages claimed and how often are they awarded. Is it really an out of control system? Yeah. And they found that in approximately ten percent of the cases, our punitive damages could have been requested. It w- actually was requested, and only in like three or four percent of the cases. There were punitive damages awarded, um, and when punitive damages were awarded, it never exceeded a factor of ten of the compensatory damages. So, if you would be entitled, for example, in Germany or the Netherlands or Belgium, uh, for like two thousand euros, then you would never be able to get more than twenty thousand euros in. Uh, sorry, it's twenty five. Yeah, twenty thousand euros in punitive damages. That was the the rule. Well, researchers also started to investigate because the US Supreme Court at some point had a rule, established a rule that said the, the punitive damages cannot exceed the um, compensatory damages by a factor of 10. And then people started to look at, does that actually solve anything? And the researchers found that there weren't any cases where... Exceeded. Exactly. But- <laughs> so the US Supreme Court Beautiful. provided a solution for a non-existing problem, basically. Yeah. Um, so Wouldn't
0: the- it even create a new problem? Because now people would think, okay, 10 times as much is fine
1: that's a good question yeah yeah i don't know if we have a lot of information empirical data on how courts or juries establish the amount of punitive Mm. damages that would be interesting to to further look at but what you can see from the research is that um yeah the is it really out of control that that should be nuanced also there's empirical research on how the number of damages, the amount of damages that are awarded over time since the 60s, for example, if that really substantially increased over time. And the answer is no, except for, I think, car liability, like traffic liability and medical malpractice. But other areas, basically the amount of damages that were awarded remains similar to like over the years. Okay. Um, And then going back to the Liebeck versus McDonald's case, uh, punitive damages weren't, I mean, it's a lot of money that that lady... Got from McDonald's, mm. um, but that wasn't the idea of the procedure. The idea was the coffee that they gave to their customers. What was too high and and was so high that you know it. it there's empirical research that shows that if you lower the the the, the heat of the coffee by like ten Fahrenheit then you get like few, like four or five seconds more to wipe it off before you get burns, which is a lot of time, four or five seconds once you have uh, uh, liquid spilled over yourself. So the idea of punitive damages would then be, because McDonald's, you know, as McDonald's, you can make a calculation, because if you lower the heat of the coffee, then less people will buy it, because when your coffee is already cold when you leave the parking lot, then you're not going to buy coffee from McDonald's the next time so that 's why they had the warm <coughs> coffee because you know then it preserved the heat for a longer time yes yeah. um, and that 's basically creating revenue and the idea of punitive damages is if you increase the amount of damages that are going to be awarded or collected from mcdonald 's, then at some point there's going to be you 're going to pass the break even point that the amount of punitive damages that they need to pay is going to exceed the profit that they make because of the mm-hmm. the hot coffee. And, and, and that's one of the the elements punitive damages have, they can change behavior because if you make it financially unattractive to serve that coffee at that temperature and to lower the temperature of the coffee, then <coughs> McDonald's will do at some point.
0: And if I remember correctly, there was an extensive history of um, customers burning themselves with McDonald's coffee. Um, but then again, also how they tried it here, they did want to settle. Um, and. The customers agreed, yeah, um, so I think that was also an important element that the court did take into account at the end that um she was not the only one yeah. uh, having any um yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, that and, and the that co- there was a cost benefit analysis that yeah. that kind of ignored the safety of the people, um the customers, so yeah, then punitive damages can be a mechanism that actually corrects that in this case, it didn't because the temperature of the coffee was still at the same level after that case compared to before <laughs> that case. I dropped a little bit like a few fahrenheit but not that much. Yeah. Um
0: okay, we we talked about uh punitive damages but maybe let's come back to the compensatory damages because when you just briefly mentioned them you talked about pain and suffering which probably on at, at first sight I wouldn't have thought about when I heard compensatory damages. Okay, my my arm is broken i have medical bills i get these paid but w- w- do i get paid for pain and suffering now because i have physical uh, psychological and physical problems
1: yeah yeah so so that is a, an example of compensatory damages it's not punitive because it's you don't try to punish the wrongdoer you're trying to get compensated for losses that you suffered yeah. but these losses are intangible you cannot touch them feel them there's no bills of them they're difficult to measure um and that's one of the challenges that tort law faces and the law and like, law of obligations in general faces because those what you're basically doing is you're saying okay so you suffered pain uh you suffered so, what we're going to, how we're going to compensate you is by providing you money, and of course, that money will never compensate your pain, right? It might yep. help you, like make you a little bit happier because now you can go on a cruise, or your life is a little bit more comfortable, or you can go to the opera, or swim with the dolphins, or whatever <laughs> you want to do with that yeah. with that money. Um, but it's always a subs- substitute for the actual loss that you suffered. Because the pain that you suffered after a car accident, you can never repair that in the way that you're becoming the same person as before the accident, for example.
0: But then Um, it's only partly compensatory, isn't it? Because, I mean, as you just mentioned, it doesn't help, technically speaking. Of course, you have the brief moment of psychological happiness and uh, maybe the loss of depression, whatever you suffered afterwards. But in the end, the problem remains.
1: It's the second best option. So yeah. basically, you create a legal reality where you say, okay, so those um, those losses we cannot repair. We cannot like really compensate them. Only thing we can do is provide you with some financial compensation um, that gives you some relief for the pain and suffering that you've gone through. Uh, and that's what we do in the legal world, uh, tort law in particular. So we give individuals a sum of money and and the idea is that it doesn't compensate the true loss but it's it's a substitute for it
0: are there any other compensatory damages that might not be the obvious
1: um, you mean other examples of where yeah. you can... But
0: because pain and suffering, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't have brought that in the um, whole category in the first yeah. place. Yeah, I mean... Um, or maybe just examples generally.
1: Yeah, I mean, we will also f- always think about when we talk about pain and suffering, about car accidents, for example, or, or personal injury cases. But also, um, for example, not being too being able to enjoy something. So there is a a rule that says that when you go on holiday um, and you book this hotel in this very nice resort, you think, Uh, but then all of a sudden it's next to a construction site, which (laughs) makes you unable to sleep at night or in the morning, uh, then you actually can claim intangible, uh, then you you suffer intangible losses because you do not, and you were not able to enjoy the holiday as you would expect uh, the, the holiday to be. Um, and then you can claim um, uh, non-pecuniary damages for that. So you can claim monetary compensation for the fact that you did not enjoy your holiday as you thought you would uh, enjoy it. So that's another example where you could s- see um, the intangible losses coming in that mm-hmm. are compensated by means of uh, monetary compensation, um, which poses like interesting questions because, for example, in the Netherlands, you're able to to claim damages for your loss of joy on a holiday but you're not not able to claim damages if a relative uh, dies in a car accident for example that's going to change now but there's some inconsistencies in the law with respect to in
0: place of the relative
1: yes no well well, for your own like basically because I've suffered yeah
0: okay okay but isn't I mean you you said it's going to change but isn't (sighs) that Quite far fetched in some way. So, is the fam- is only the family allowed to suffer now? Is the boy and girlfriend allowed to suffer? Are the students allowed to suffer that? Uh, f- Study together with that person.
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody is allowed <laughs> to suffer. Yeah, of no, course. but like. But who, when can you claim? Yeah, yeah that's exactly, always. Yeah. That's very arbitrary when you like who can claim and for what amount. Yeah. And it's weird that, you know, when a relative dies in a car accident for which somebody else is responsible and liable, that as a relative member, you get 20,000. And when that person is severely mm-hmm. injured, you get 17,000. And when. Uh, you lose your thumb in uh, in an accident, then you get 2000 for example. So basically every amount that you put on this loss is going to be arbitrary. I mean, you can compensate the medical costs, but the loss for pain and suffering and for having to deal with the, f- the fact that, that you're alive but your family member is not or that you l- lost your thumb or your leg or whatever… Um, yeah that's 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 weird by definition yeah, and also yeah. like how like who's gonna be able to claim like the boyfriend and the girlfriend yeah, exactly but, right that's do you have to be married or you the know, best I, friends yeah so where does it <laughs> where does it stop mm-hmm. uh, which which can become weird because sometimes you know as a friend you might have a better relationship with the relative or with the with the victim um than the parent for example mm-hmm. and then the parent gets gets compensated and you don't it it's. In a way, it's it's weird. Um, Just out of interest, how is the Dutch approach then solving that? Because he said it's going to change. Uh, it's not solving it. So now it's uh, uh, the relatives basically do not get, uh, are not able to claim damages. Yeah. And in the new system, they will be able to claim damages. I think it's 20,000 euros when somebody dies in 17 and a half, when somebody is... But then it's first and second. A, uh, something like that, uh, yes. <laughs> okay, yeah.
0: so there's an exhaustive list. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, you get a list of people who are entitled to that. Uh, All right. That, uh, those losses, yeah, yeah. And you can ask yourself: Is that really the solution that people want? So um, uh, there's actually research that shows our relatives do not claim as often as victims themselves, because probably because of this reason. Because what does it help you to collect twenty thousand yeah. euros? You shrug your shoulders, and then you have twenty thousand euros, and but doesn't give you your relative back. Uh, doesn't make anybody healthier. Um, so yeah, maybe other remedies. Sh- would be better, like making sure that it doesn't happen again. Getting information about what happened, making sure that those who are responsible are going to be uh, are going to be responsible and kept responsible. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the the issues we're dealing with in tort law, like what remedies are available to victims and what remedies should be available.
0: And the in the news at the moment, sadly for the wrong reasons, are um, environmental problems again. So um, global warming. That supposedly doesn't exist, <laughs> by some, uh, in the opinion of some people, the Paris Agreement, etc. Um, my question would be, just out of the blue now, whether, technically speaking, a person could ask the government for damages because global warming or the the outcome of global warming, the realizations thereof, caused damage to. Health, property, yeah.
1: That would be a difficult claim because what you need to prove is basically that you suffered losses from that. So how to prove that you suffered a loss. And more importantly, how to prove uh, causality. So how to prove a causal relationship between climate change, for example, and you suffering that loss. So how can you prove that without the climate change that loss wouldn't have happened or alternatively that you suffered a loss because of the climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have to prove that there is climate change, that you suffered a loss and that there's a relationship between the two. Um, and even if you would be able to do that, you have to prove what uh, what the size of your loss is. So... Mm-hmm. How 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 much money could you actually claim? So that is like really far fetched to <laughs> um, to have those claims awarded. Uh, a little bit less far fetched is, uh, for example, the Netherlands. It's it's a unique case, the Urgenda case, um, where the government was actually held liable for the fact that they didn't do enough about uh, mm-hmm. enforcing climate change mm-hmm. uh, rules legislation. So. And there, the the government was ordered to um to reduce the the, the reduction like the emissions of uh, of certain uh, things that we put in the air, and that was pretty unique because well it's criticized for many reasons, uh, but there you kind you're only one step away from the situation you talked about, which is claiming actual actual damages for for that. But the construction is the same because basically what you're saying, government you're not doing enough to control climate change and that is a, a tort according to yeah. our legal system.
0: And the lawyers also came from Maastricht. <laughs>
1: I don't know who the uh, I, don't I do think so. Was.
0: Yeah, I think so. The uh, law firm is here. Um, <laughs> Paulussen, I think. Well, anyways, Reis, thank you very much uh, for this uh, quite exhaustive talk. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so if you want to find more information on Maply, that's maply.eu, but... Can the listeners also find more information, for example, on the network analysis? Are you in a research gate, or how do um, they find you?
1: Well, they can find me on the internet. Uh, if you just type in my name, Gijs van Dijk, the, the, the website should uh, should pop up. Uh, we're working on this project that should finish uh, by September, and we hope to present outcomes there. I'm working with a bunch of students on where we're network analysis to legal topics, so I expect publications coming up in, uh, in the fall. Uh, on the national level in the Netherlands, but also on the European level because I have some international students working on mm-hmm. that as well. So there's, uh, there's more to come. And if you're interested, just uh, check out my website and uh, you'll discover what the status of that project is.
0: The listeners, that was Gijs van Dijk, professor of private law at Maastricht University. Thank you very much. Gijs, thank you very much uh, for this uh quite exhaustive talk you're welcome um (laughs) uh yeah so if you want to find more information on maply that's maply.eu but can the listeners also find more information for example on the network analysis are you in a research gate or how do um, they find you
1: well, you can find me on the internet uh, if you just type in my name, Gijs van Dijk, the, the, the website should uh, should pop up. Uh, we're working on this project that should finish uh, by September, and we hope to present outcomes there. I'm working with a bunch of students on where we're applying network analysis to legal topics, so I expect publications coming up in, uh, in the fall. Uh, on the national level in the Netherlands, but also on the European level, because I have some international students working on mm-hmm. that as well. So there's uh, there's more to come. And if you're interested, just uh, check out my website and uh, you'll discover what the status of that project is.
0: Dear listeners, that was Gijs van Dijk, professor of private law at Maastricht University. Thank you very much.